I'm fortunate to see the Statue of Liberty in the distance on my daily commute into Manhattan. And passing it on my way to and from work today had some extra special significance. Today we're going to open with Emma Lazarus's words inscribed on a plaque at the Statue of Liberty, because we think we could all use a little reminder from time to time. Lazarus said, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I'm Nathan Rubin, and this is the Millennial Politics Podcast. On the pod today, we're joined by MP Editor-in-Chief Jordan Valerie. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Nathan. And Senior Contributor Dylan Christine. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Nathan. And last but certainly not least, we're really excited to be joined by Dreamer, MP Contributor, and our good friend, Jose Avila. Jose is going to be speaking with us about his experience growing up here in the United States, his reaction to Trump's decision to rescind DACA, and what the future may hold for him and his family. Before we begin, remember to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Millen Politics, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, in our podcast, and iTunes, in the Google Play Store. All right, let's cover the big news that broke earlier today. President Trump has decided to end DACA with a six-month delay, effectively punting this decades-old issue to the GOP-controlled Congress. Trump himself didn't make the announcement, and instead, Attorney General Jeff Sessions did. Jose, thanks for joining us and sharing your personal experience as a dreamer. Can you kind of break down for us what happened today, particularly the six-month delay that we're working off of? All right, so back in 2012, Laval passed an executive order that basically granted deferred action for certain undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children. That program has been in place since then. In the 2016 election, Trump ran on a platform that he was going to pretty much put an end to the program. Now, as he became president, that narrative kind of changed, and no one really knew what his true motive was going to be with it. At one point, he promised that everything was going to be fine. There was other moments where he doubled down on what he said during the campaign. And so up to this point, no one really knew exactly what was going to happen until notes broke last week that he and his administration were going to pull the plug on it and end it completely. So that's what has kind of happened that has led up to this point. There's a lot of hardliners in the Republican side that have been very much against it. And so one of those was actually my, my attorney general from here in the state of Texas, who was the, kind of the one who led the charge on it and sent Trump a letter along with many other Republican hardliners, basically threatening that they will sue him and his administration unless he did what was done today, which was to rescind the DACA program. Hey, Jose, it's Dylan. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story and sort of how you came to be today and your dreamer status? Yeah, sure thing. I was brought here at the age of five by my parents, obviously. I was born in Mexico, and I lived there until the age of five. 
I don't remember much about it. Some of my earliest memories are from living in Mexico, but the vast majority of my experience and what has contributed to what I am today was gained while living here in the United States. I was brought here on a tourist visa or a travel visa. We overstayed that visa. Our whole lives have been here. My whole life has been here since then. I was always a little bit of aware that something was wrong when it came down to, not wrong, but something was different when it came down to who I was as a citizen. It wasn't really completely 100% clear to me until well into high school when I started to realize that I couldn't travel to certain locations here in Texas due to checkpoints when I realized that I couldn't get my license when I couldn't board a plane because I didn't have the proper identification. That's when it really became clear that I was undocumented and that I did not have the proper paperwork. But nevertheless, I, through a lot of hard work and through a lot of hard work from my parents, I made it into a small private college after I graduated high school. I went to class, did my work, everything that I, I needed to do up until my junior year, which is when President Obama came on board and said that he was going to draw up this program, this program called DACA. After he made that announcement in June of 2012, immediately I went and my family and I went and hired an, an attorney who helped us through the entire process. It was a very difficult time because I was juggling a lot of things related to college, having to keep my grades up, do all the, the homework that needed to be done. It was my junior year, so it was kind of that year where you really start focusing on your major and what that's going to be, and so a lot of my classes were very important. I had to be there for a lot of that, as well as I had to travel back to my parents that lived 200 plus miles away to meet with them and then travel another probably 100 miles to the nearest city where my attorney was to, to get this whole process going and get all the proper documentation and everything that needed to be done. So that was what my summer of 2012 consisted of. And so by September of that year, I qualified and got approved and it was the first first time that I was out of the shadows. I started contributing to Social Security because I got a Social Security card and I started to work. That's really where, where the big change came from. I no longer was someone without an identity. I now officially had an identity in the government's eyes and that's that's great. And since then, my life has been completely different. I graduated college and immediately was able to move into the workforce. Soon after that, I was able to save enough money to buy my own car. After doing all that, I was able to move to Dallas, which is where my work is, and started working there as a behavior specialist. So I work with kids who have autism for a nonprofit, and I, I still am there now. I'm able to pay for my own rent. I'm able to have health insurance. I am able to have a car and do everything that any other normal American has the ability to do, thanks to President Obama and the DACA program. So whenever I found out that this was going to be taken away, I was very disappointed and very sad and, and even angry because I felt like this was all being done as more of a political issue with political motives and not necessarily because of anything legal. It just didn't seem right to me. And that's where I am now is, is having to deal with this fallout and I am encouraging everyone that I know to speak out and stand with me and call a representative, call a congressman and make your voice heard that you stand with dreamers, which is who we are. And to for Congress to, to pass some form of legislation that's going to provide protection for the almost 1 million DACA recipients who, in six months, there's no telling where, where we're going to be. So yeah, it's very nerve-wracking to think about that, but there's very little that I feel we can do at this 
groups, but that doesn't mean that we can't make our voices heard and we can't take to the streets, which is something that a lot of people are doing now as we speak, and I'm very thankful for it. But it's something, it's a momentum we're going to have to keep going, especially with a Congress that is as divisive and as difficult to work with as, as this Congress is, that is run by, by the Republican Party. I think it's going to be an uphill battle, but a battle that can be won if we all unite and we all stand up for dreamers, for, for all of us. Could you explain to us what exactly this six-month delay is, as well as what you think we need to see in legislation that we want passed in Congress? So the six-month delay is basically Trump's way of telling Congress, hey, you have six months to pass legislation on this, or, or it's just it's out of my hands. A lot of people also see it as his way to shift the blame if nothing happens and nothing gets passed on them and kind of takes it off of himself. So what this basically means is that if Congress doesn't pass anything in six months, then DACA, unless President Trump changes his mind, is done. It's no longer it's no longer in effect. It will end for each individual as their permit expires. Unless your permit expires before March of 2018, then you are allowed to immediately apply for a renewal by October of this year. And then those people will get an extra full two years. For people like me, that mine doesn't expire by March, I will only have the remainder of what what I have, which is about a year. So that's what that that means. And it's why it's so important that Congress act on it. There is always been legislation put forth in Congress as far back as George W. Bush. The most famous one, the one that most people probably heard of, is the Dream Act. It's not always the exact same bill that gets put up for a vote. It's very similar in that it, it focuses a lot on the group that DACA kind of is for, which are undocumented children of people who came here as children. And that is probably the most popular legislation among a lot of immigrant groups. There's other legislation out there. The Race Act has also come up a lot recently, but it doesn't necessarily just focus on dreamers. It's kind of an overall immigrant overhaul, and it's very controversial because it basically redoes the immigration system that we currently have into a more merit-based system, which basically says if you don't have the right kind of skills or ability to do certain things, then you're more than likely not going to get a chance to become a United States citizen. Based more on what you can do, what you can provide, it's more work-based. And so that's another option. Um, and there's other other legislation out there that I'm sure will get a lot of news. But up to this point, we, we don't really know what that's going to look like, what kind of bills Congress is going to take a look at. But they're going to have to look at something. And if they can't agree on one bill or on one thing, um, then it's looking pretty grim for almost 800,000 people, young adults, us. Is there anything states can do, any legislation they can pass to combat this? It, it depends on what you mean by combat, because immigration law is federal law. And so you, you look at a lot of the issues that are coming up with sanctuary cities. Yeah, states can act, cities can act, and, and pass certain legislation ordinances that can possibly go around certain things. But ultimately, they cannot prevent ICE agents, which are federal agents, from coming in and deporting anyone who isn't in the country legally. There's been certain people, certain instances that have had people taken refuge in like churches, and that has kept immigration officials from coming after them because basically ICE agents can't enter a church and pull people out and say, you know, you're being deported. Those people have been able to, to escape that, but then they also have to stay there. They can't leave the premises. 
at all whatsoever. So there are certain things the states, communities, and cities and towns can do, but overall, this has to be an issue resolved by the federal government. It cannot be something that we left to the states to do, because there's only so much they can do. That's pretty much the only option at this point, and it's why a lot of immigrant groups and a lot of people are pushing for Congress to do the right thing here, now that, that President Trump has decided to do the opposite. That's why it's so important that Congress gets their act together, that they find some form of bipartisan legislation that they can all get behind of and, and push that through as quickly as they possibly can since we have this, this six-month timetable. Sort of one of the myths that this administration keeps throwing out around immigration is fear-mongering idea of we don't know who these people are, we don't have records, yada, yada, yada. Jose, can you maybe myth-bust for us a little bit and talk about what's the process to apply and maintain your status and help us all understand that process a little bit better? That's a great question because it leads me into really the, the meat and potatoes of what DACA is. Today, I mean, I'm sure we all heard President Trump and Jeff Sessions and, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders all kind of give the same take on, on this whole issue. Everything they said really irritated me to, to an extent because a lot of it was fear-mongering. And to be completely honest, a lot of it was lies. First and foremost, with relating to, to DACA, we undergo a strict broad background check. It is something to the extent of, right down to the extent that they take our fingerprints and they take all our information and they pass it through this, I don't know what kind of system, but it's, it pretty much solidifies that we are one, not criminals, two, not involved in any form of gang activity, and three, that we are going to be productive members of our society, that we're not a threat to, to American society. Anything from having a DUI, DWI, to having assault charges, to having too many misdemeanors can disqualify someone from getting deferred action through DACA. I have even heard of instances of individuals who had tattoos that were questionable and that put their DACA status in jeopardy. So it's not a program that puts criminals on the street or has spiked crime, but that, that was a lie. It, it only allows for those who are squeaky clean to get through and take part in that program. The other lie that I heard today was that, and it was from Jeff Session, was that we were basically stealing jobs from, from Americans. When I heard that, I felt really hurt and really angry because that is not who we are. That's not who I am. A lot of us have used this program to get degrees, to get graduate degrees, to get PhDs. We go into fields that include everything from being an executive to being in technology sector to being in the medical sector, mental health like I am. These are all jobs and industries that are very difficult to break into and to be successful in. So to say that we are, are people who are just coming in and taking all these jobs, that, that is just a complete lie. That is not correct whatsoever. There are plenty of opportunities for anyone, anyone, whether they're a naturalized citizen or a citizen by birth or a resident, or, or basically just having a work visa like we do. No one's coming in and robbing someone of, of a job. That is just nothing but fear-mongering and catering to a mindset that only a very small group of people has. So, no, don't don't believe any of that. Another argument that I, ke I keep hearing is that a lot of us aren't being productive, that a lot of us take this program and then we do nothing with it. That is furthest thing from the truth. The statistic is 91% of DACA recipients are fully employed or are also in college or some form of technical school. 
which by the way is another requirement of DACA, is that you have to be either a graduate of high school or college or be enrolled in high school and college or be part of the military to be able to, to take part in the program. So this idea that we are just kind of mooching off the system with it is not true. We are very much involved. We are very much paying taxes and, and doing everything that we're supposed to do. And we're here and, and we're just as American as, as everyone else. We are speaking. English, we are very capable of doing a lot of things that people sometimes question. And we're not taking anyone's job, we're not criminals. All these arguments for that are just completely based on false assumptions and aren't true. Simple as that. Jose, you just mentioned that 90% of DACA recipients are either employed, full time students, in technical school, or the military. And one of the prerequisites for even applying to the program is to be totally clear of any kind of criminal record. So when I hear these things in my mind, I think these are emerging leaders of, of the next generation. And these are the best of the best of people that were brought over through no fault of their own. And now Donald Trump is making a decision to unilaterally say, you're not welcome here. And Correct me if I'm wrong, not only is this inhumane, but this is really bad policy at the core. Is that right? If you do a little bit of research of what kind of impact this is going to have on the economy, upwards of, of billions of dollars are going to be lost within the next few years if, obviously, DACA recipients are no longer allowed in the workforce and are deported. Because if you think about it, I mean, a lot of it is also common sense. You have a very high number of individuals who have mortgages, who have student loans, who have car loans, who have a lot of debt that you're basically taking out and saying, okay, you're no longer welcome. What's going to happen to all of that? Who's going to pay for all that? Where's all that going to go? We contribute a lot to this economy. There is a lot of us, I believe Tim Cook even came on today and said that in his company alone, which is Apple, there's over 250 employees who are dreamers. These are people whose spots are going to have to be refilled with someone. The work they do is vital. If this continues and nothing gets done, they're going to be completely out of the workforce overnight. Think of how much of an impact that's going to have on the economy when you take out a huge piece of the pie from the workforce. It's going to leave a void that's going to cost billions of dollars to replace. You're going to have a lot of people with high skills that are going to need to be replaced immediately in a lot of these companies and just won't be there. Companies won't have access to them as easily as they have in the past. So something I've seen a big focus on with immigration activists is actually not focusing on the economic value of DACA recipients and DREAMers and ensuring that we focus on their humanity. Do you think we should be discussing this in terms of just people's humanity and not the economy? No, that's, a, that's a good question. I think it is vital and very important that the main focus of all this is the humanity of DACA recipients and DREAMers. Because after all, we are, we are human and we are people who have lives and people who are, are just like anyone else, like any other American. And so focusing on the humanity of all this, the fact that you're literally taking thousands of people who may not even know about their home countries, who may not ever have been to their home countries besides the time that they spent there before being brought over as children. And all of a sudden, you're telling them that they are no longer allowed in the country that they have called home for years, upon years, for the majority of their life, and telling them that they have to go back to a country they don't even know or know very little about. 
the kind of psychological and kind of emotional pain that that's going to have on them and on their families and on their friends and the people that, that they grew up with is immeasurable. So yes, the humanity of it, it's all, it's very important. And I think that should be the main focus. But I think we also need to talk a little bit about the economy and the economical impact going through with not providing some form of dream actual legislation that's going to save all these kids from deportation. It's also important because there's a lot of people out there, in particular those who are more hardlining conservatives, who have difficulty really understanding the emotional part of this and I think they need those numbers and I think they need to see how intertwined and kind of interwoven we are as dreamers with the economy and with the workforce and with the country in general. I do believe both are important. I believe the human side is the most vital and should be the, the focus of all this. We are people and we are Americans just like anyone else and we are in pain and we're in fear and we are struggling and we are emotional psychological individuals who are going to suffer if this continues and who are suffering now there's a lot of us who woke up this morning knowing what was to come and nothing prepared us for it it's been a long day uh, emotionally and, and physically for, for I'm going to say all of us and for all the people that stand with us and for all the people who support us so you talked a little bit about people who want to help calling their congressional representatives, really making our voices heard in terms of taking to the streets. Is there anything else you think that we can do either politically or in our own communities to help support the Dreamers? Yes, I do think that one of the most vital things that needs to be done and something that the narrative that I keep pushing is that they need to call the representatives. It doesn't matter who your congressman is. It doesn't matter what party they affiliate with. There is a lot of bipartisan support for some form of legislation that will protect dreamers, that will protect DACA recipients from both parties. It's also important to realize that there's a lot of people, a lot of politicians, a lot of very powerful people out there who also don't want that, who are very much going to fight tooth and nail to keep any form of legislation from passing because they see it as amnesty. They see it as some form of gift given to, in their own words, illegal immigrants have broken the law. I had to deal with that personally in that my attorney general from Texas, Kim Paxton, is the one who put all this in motion that essentially cost the Trump administration to end this program. We're going to need people to stand up and call the representatives and say, hey, we don't care what, what these hardliners say. We support this. We support some form of legislation. We want these members of our society, these Americans, to stay and to continue to contribute to our society. But also really just pushing people, pushing their loved ones, pushing their friends to go out there and inform themselves about this. Because there is going to be a lot of misinformation and things that are going to be pushed in order to try to develop some form of narrative to support why the Trump administration did what they did. The last thing they want is to seem like they are heartless and lack compassion. So they're going to push a narrative that this is the right thing to do, whether because it, it was unconstitutional for Obama to do this in the first place, to these are, aren't good people and they're, they're criminals. Those arguments are going to be out there. And we need people to inform themselves and be aware that, no, these aren't truths. These are things based in bigotry and fear. And they're used to fearmonger and to cater to a certain group of people that, that is small, that isn't representative of what America really is. And, and so going out there and informing yourself, looking at what DACA really is, looking at who we are as dreamers. And not just that, but looking who we are as 11 million undocumented immigrants. I don't blame my parents for bringing me here. I thank them. And so people need to go out there and inform themselves about who we are 
who our parents are, what we contribute, what we can bring to the table, and what we have been bringing to the table. Call your representative and inform yourself and spread the news. What is the saying? Information's power. <laughs> so I'm very much a believer in that. So that, that's what I believe should happen. Well, Jose, we thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for being a part of the Millennial Politics family and really for your bravery for speaking out about this. I know today must have been hard for you and must be difficult to talk about, but know that we've got your back and we're going to continue to spread the message that you're here to stay and you belong here and just know that you're in our thoughts and and we're going to continue to, to work hard to make sure that everything works out the way it should. So thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate giving me the platform to put my voice out there and to make myself hurt. I definitely refuse to be silenced, to go back to the shadows. I am an American, and I am going to act as one, and I will not be silenced. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And again, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Politics. And we hope that you'll consider subscribing to our newsletter on our website and our podcast and iTunes in the Google Play Store. I'm Nathan Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Nathan H. Rubin. You can find Jordan at Jordan Val Allen and Dylan at Dylan Without Bob on Instagram. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Mm-hmm.